Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24. Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Redefining Security podcast. Have you ever thought that we are selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Perhaps we are. So let's look at how we can organize a successful InfoSec program that integrates people, process, technology, and culture to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. EdgeScan offers continuous vulnerability intelligence as a service, accurately identifying vulnerabilities and exposures across the full stack. All threats are verified by cybersecurity experts, providing exploitable risk and remediation guidance, virtually false positive free. Learn more at edgescan.com. Archer empowers organizations to manage multiple dimensions of risk on one platform with on-premises and software-as-a-service offerings and quickly implement industry-standard processes and best practices for advanced risk management maturity, informed decision-making, and enhanced business performance. Learn more at archerirm.com. John. Here we are. We're in, we're in a critical moment. <laughs> Aren't we always in a critical <laughs> moment? Lately, it seems like it's, uh, it's the news. It's it something news. critical. You know what else is news? Digital transformation has, has been news. That's you know, old we, news. That is that old news. news. <laughs> you know what's really old news that we continue to leave further and further behind? The Industrial Revolution. And the industrial control systems that we built to run all this stuff that we're now trying to automate and control with software. <laughs> Wait, are you telling me that the entire system now is still the way it used to be in the late 1700s? Uh, are we close there? The only, are we the that only, bad? The only difference is it now has a, a, uh, an internet, ethernet <laughs> controller attached to it. <laughs> so it's even worse. <laughs> it's now exposed. To wow, wow, wow. No, let, let's not scare everybody. We're, we're not there. We're not there. But uh, I think that we we may be a little behind and there are a lot of things that need to be to be done maybe not just at, at the local level in each specific country but maybe something that needs to be coordinated as we are all inter interdependent all over the world in the way that we use energy that we have uh, commerce markets interacting one with the other and uh, it's complex complexity we always go there It is complex, and with complexity uh, comes heads in sand, right? So let's just <laughs> ignore it. Or many people don't know how to, how to begin to understand what the complexities are and what those mean to them personally and, and socially. And I'm one of them. So we, You're one of them. I'm, I'm one of them we, as well. I, we we I, brought I somebody pretend, that, that is going to explain us. <laughs> But uh, thankfully, we have somebody who... Uh, wrote a book about the topic, which is about uh, protecting 
critical infrastructure and industrial control systems. I'm very pleased to welcome Ernie Hayden to the show. Ernie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. And uh, we're, we're excited to learn more about your book and uh, how folks can, can leverage it. It's actually a, a guide for folks or a reference resource, if I'm not mistaken. So we're going to talk about that. Yep. Before we get to the book, though, a bit about some of the things you've been involved with uh, and things you're working on now that perhaps led you to, uh, to write the book. Okay. Well, great. Well, again, thank you to you gentlemen and ITSB magazine. Really uh, enjoy uh, the opportunity to talk about my book and I appreciate meeting you. Um, let me talk about my background first, because I think that will help the listeners understand where in the world this book idea came from. Um, so I've been in working for 45 years. I mean, I graduated from University University of Washington uh, in uh, 1974. And so the immediate reaction is this guy's old and uh, maybe I am, but I like to think of myself as seasoned. Okay. So, um, but uh, so since 1974, I've got kind of like two large career chunks from 1974 until around uh, literally the day after 9-11. I was on the energy side of the business. I was doing things like nuclear, nuclear energy, nuclear engineering. Um, I was working with uh, electric utilities, distribution, transmission, uh, uh, other like solar uh, distributed resources and that kind of thing. And uh, on 9-11, literally two days after 9-11, uh, my boss, the president of a company I was at called Alstom Esca, said to me, look, with 9-11, a very bad event happened and we need somebody to take over security. I'd like you to do that. And his comment was, I have no idea what that means. Just do it. And from that day until literally now, that's all I have done is security. And my security has included cybersecurity and physical security. Uh, and I've had certifications for all sorts of things, including industrial controls. I have the SANS uh, certification. Uh, I've got my CISSP. I also had the certified ethical hacker for about, uh, held that for about 10 years. And then uh, also my recent one, the last, uh, four years has been a physical security professional from ASIS. And um, what I have had a chance to do is work at utilities, refineries. I've been to the oil sand sites up in Northern Alberta. I've been to facilities and uh, chemical plants and refineries and oil plants in Saudi Arabia and the Middle East. Uh, I've been to uh, South, South Asia. I've been to Southeast Asia, uh, done a lot around Europe, even done things in uh, North Africa. So I've had a chance to really do some very cool things uh, in my role as a security person. Um, the longer I work, the more I realize I'm less of an expert because there's so many new things going on. Uh, it's a challenge. So what I'd like to do is just rather than ramble, just talk about that background and how in the world this book idea surfaced, if that's okay with you guys. Yeah. And then, and one of the things I wanted to get 
your your thoughts on as you do that is you, you joked about being seasoned. Uh, the the thing that comes to mind when you say that though is because you you talk about the connection of cyber and physical, and I don't think we see a lot of that. We're seeing more of it, but not a lot of that connection. There, folks are either in the cyberspace, some are in the physical space, and and I want I want to pick a little bit on the season part in that are the folks handling critical infrastructure familiar with the digital elements of that and the risk that comes with it and are we starting to see enough of that that connection so perhaps as you move into the inspiration of the book you can maybe touch on that sure well how about let's just talk about that now because uh, being seasoned i'll forget so <laughs> forget about what forget about what right um so, you know, when I first started, it was cybersecurity. That was the thing. Cyber, 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 cyber. And that's where I started, okay? And uh, as things move forward, places like NIST and, uh, sorry, National Institute of Standards and Technology um, and a few other entities, I think even DHS, started coming forward with the cyber physical interface, you know? But it was... And I still think it's not quite uh, embedded in the community yet because there's a tendency to think, well, it's cyber or it's physical. Well, a gate control on a facility has a cyber element. I can hack that. I can open the gate with by hacking it. And now I've just breached a physical barrier. So you've got to get people to think like that. And critical infrastructure has exactly the same concept. Uh, for example, a bridge. Uh, in fact, Marco, I'll talk a little bit about down your neck of the woods. Uh, in fact, Sean, you lived in LA too. You might remember this. There was a huge fire over in Rosemead, uh, California, where it was a, a tanker truck caught fire underneath a bridge. And, uh, you know, the bridge is just a bland old boring concrete bridge and the fire was so hot that it, it didn't melt the concrete, but it damaged the concrete uh, incredibly to the point that that bridge was turned off for, I think, about two or three months. Well, the thing is, people are going, it's just a bridge. We can drive our cars around that. That's not true. That bridge had inside of it, it had internet connectivity, it had electric utilities in, inside of it, had telecommunications inside of it. I don't think that one had water inside of it, but you got the idea. You can, if you can build inside of these structures all these different uh, critical services. Well, that was a critical infrastructure that was destroyed and had a huge impact in the area. Somebody needs to think like that. They need to think about what is the holistic input in, uh, 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 effect to damage to critical infrastructure. And to be frank, that's one of the ideas I try to put in my book big time because I want people to think, okay, I'm here to assess, and I use that word because it's on the cover of the book, but I go out to do an assessment of a facility. It could be a school. It could be a refinery, it could be an interstate, it could be a bridge, uh, it could be an automobile, uh, like the president's car, okay, you know, that he drives around it. And you really need to look at the holistic issues. What are the threats 
on these things and what are the vulnerabilities and threats times vulnerabilities times consequences equals risk. So um, how about if I just stop there and then you guys can just uh, throw your questions at me and well, I, I'm I'm gonna jump on this because you just said something that I, I wanted to hear and and I wanted the audience to hear, which is you you define and named some critical infrastructure that probably people didn't even think like, wait a minute, how is the president car in a critical infrastructure, right? So we we always think, as you say, oh, it's the, the nuclear plants, it's the electric facility, but then you realize that in this interconnected world, and we were joking at the beginning, like sure, it's the industrial revolution, everything goes to steam, but is is IoT? Wow. Okay. Can you imagine that? I mean, I, I go there with my with my creative brain, and uh, I kind of want to write a book about it, uh, <laughs> a steampunk IoT book. But let's go there. Like, explain maybe how you have seen through throughout your career this interconnectivity augment complexity therefore almost making it impossible and i don't want to be you know the, the bearer of bad news but to make everything secure yeah all over the world i mean even with the pandemic we see that if you break something it's not just that thing is everything connected to that so let let's see how you have approached this in in your book sure well, um, excellent point. Great question. I love talking about this, so you'll have to cut my throat in order to get me to keep quiet. But um, go for it. Really, I, I meant like that. So um, anyway, first of all, let's start back in the, the old days. Okay, the the early days of uh, infrastructure. You know, like the Brooklyn Bridge was made out of wood. Uh, maybe had some steel built into it, uh, but, you know, cables, that kind of thing. Even the Golden Gate Bridge, right? Uh, but imagine losing those bridges uh, during uh, any kind of event, whether it be a hurricane, uh, alien invasion, I mean, who knows what. That's a major, major impact, okay, just because of transportation. And transportation is considered a critical infrastructure, now, admittedly, my car is not critical infrastructure. Nobody cares, right? But the president's car, as I alluded to, is critical because when the president is in it, he's part of the government, and the government is considered a critical infrastructure, for lack of a better term, okay? So uh, in the old days, these systems were pretty boring. They were just a bunch of pieces and piece parts put together. There really weren't any systems to them. And uh, as a result, if a tire blew on a car, truck, and I don't mean to focus on cars, I have to, I have to get better examples. But the point is, is that the, the, the thing is, it was kind of a non-event. All right, get out, change a tire. All right, nowadays, I live uh, near a facility where uh, it's called PACCAR. PACCAR manufactures Freightliner trucks. And uh, this is their R&D facility. And they have trucks out all the time carrying giant concrete bricks. And all they do is drive these trucks to death. Those trucks are highly censored, highly censored. They can tell you the tire pressure. They can tell you whether or not the vehicle is 
temperatures are high or low. They can tell you about when the oil condition. They can tell you about tons and tons of things. Is that truck critical infrastructure? No, but where are we today? We don't have enough truck drivers. And as a result, when you go to the grocery store, there's no toilet paper on the shelf. There's no towels, paper towels on the shelf. There's no toys going to be available for Christmas because there's not enough truck drivers and the ships are all stuck someplace. So critical infrastructure is very, very broad and it's interconnected. And um, in my book, I talk about a paper that was written literally before 9-11. I think it was published about two months before 9-11. And it's a seminal paper that was that was written to basically talk about interconnectivity and interdependencies of critical infrastructure. And it's a fantastic paper. And having read that back then, I've used it for so many of my thought processes when I go to a facility. So Marco, you're talking about a steam plant. You go to a steam plant. Well, let's see, I have electricity that need, I need electricity to run the booster pumps, the feed pumps, a bunch of other things, right? Uh, circulating water. I need electricity to run the ventilation, okay? Now I generate the steam. Well, what do I need there? Well, I need water. I need ability to collect the water, to refresh the water, to make sure it's clean, uh, demineralized or whatever, or at least using uh, filtration and uh, uh, different types of cleanup mechanisms. Okay, so I need water, I need electricity. Oh, by the way, I need fuel because I got to burn a fire to make that to make that water boil to make the steam. Okay, where's that fuel come from? Is it natural gas? Is it oil? Is it nuclear or whatever? So you have another one. Okay, well, let's go back to the fuel. Where does the fuel come from? Well, it's on a pipeline or it's from a delivery of a truck or it's from some other mechanism, okay? Is it literally right there on the site um, where they have a, a, a drill in the ground, they pump out the, the oil or the natural gas and they pump it into the facility. All right, then we also have the, the uh, IoT, the uh, Internet of Things. Well, I need an internet connection. I need telecommunications, et cetera. So, all these things combined really bring to bear a really fantastic opportunity. I have a steam plant that runs and makes steam and I can use for a variety of things. But what if I lose one of those? What if I have an impact on one of those that can ruin my day, so to speak? That's the interconnected aspect. Colonial Pipeline, when they were hacked, okay, how many people were affected by gasoline prices skyrocketing and lines of cars trying to get gasoline because people were petrified that they weren't going to be able to get gas because Colonial was not able to, sorry, Colonial chose not to ship the fuel in the, in the pipeline. And I'm, I'm going to pause you on that note, Ernie, because that, that, that word you use chose, um, the one that I'm always interested in and, and, when we talk about cybersecurity uh, from the business perspective, it's always viewed as the department of no. No, you can't do that. It's too risky. No, you can't do that. We're out of compliance. No, you can't do that. Uh, it doesn't fit with our risk model. Um, 
are we when we look at the big picture of critical infrastructure maybe this is a good time to kind of get the global view as well are we just pressing forward without any checks and balances or are we or other places where we're actually doing the risk assessments well to say no but if you do this you can are can you have, share some examples of of how things are looking in different places sure um let me start with the, the, the first, the, the last part first, and we'll go back to the international perspective of critical infrastructure. Uh, I've been a CISO, Chief Information Security Officer, or equivalent in title, uh, four different times. And each one was the first time they ever had a CISO. Okay, so it was like, oh, you're the CISO, congratulations, we don't know what you want, what, we, what it looks like, just make it happen, okay? And then I went to the next one where I was smarter and I knew what to look for, et cetera. But the, the sad part of it was, is I irritated people faster as I got smarter. So they were saying, well, how did you know we had this problem? And I said, it's intuitively obvious. Look at this, bum, 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 bum. And I learned that from my previous job. Now, the challenge is, is that when I was CISO, one of the things I did learn is don't be the department of no, be the person who basically says, okay, you want to do X, that's fantastic. My concern is how do we do it securely? And there's a difference, right? It's not a matter of don't do it, it's a matter of do it, but do it securely. Uh, that's a little more sophisticated approach. I didn't have that in my first job. And I uh, was able to develop that as, as I got further down the, the uh, stream. But also, uh, like I say, I was able to see things, see problems faster just because of past experience. And uh, my bosses tended to get irritated because they didn't believe that I could see it when I did. And I had to, you know, here's all the evidence and so forth. All right, let's talk about international perspective of critical infrastructure. So the, lead, the leader was really the United States. And in my book, I have a whole chapter on what is critical infrastructure. And it's really intended to be more of a, uh, a history book, a history chapter. Because I start out at the very beginning back in the Clinton administration and even before that, where there was discussions about well, what is important to our society and so forth. And then essentially it went from, you know, from goes from Clinton to Bush <clears throat> to Obama. And they all had different focuses, foci, if you will, on critical infrastructure and what was determined and defined and so forth. And the U.S. really has the had the leading edge on this. And there are very good definitions of critical infrastructure. There are very good definitions of what constitutes critical infrastructure and so forth including IT, which would, in, in my mind, also includes OT. But if you go to other countries, which I tr intended to do, I wanted to do a survey to say, well, who else is doing this? Uh, the UK, Netherlands uh, have some leading work on this. Japanese have a little bit. Um, most of the, the leading Western countries are doing it. Um, and But I'll give you an example. So if you were to lay out the list of critical infrastructure from the United States and compare it to the United Kingdom, uh, it's almost the same, not quite. There's a one or two little differences, 
But what's really interesting is the UK has declared space a critical infrastructure. The US has not. So let me give you an example. UK says, hey, space is really critical. Well, what do we have? We have satellites. We have to worry about uh, space-borne attacks, uh, you know, from another country. We have to worry about how space is used, but space junk, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? They're thinking like that, whereas the U.S. kind of has it woven in to other elements of critical infrastructure, and it's not particularly obvious, such as, uh, um, you know, uh, communications. Uh, has a has an element of satellites and satellite communications and so forth, but I'd say I really like the British approach just because it's it's almost like here it is it's an obvious concern let's declare that critical infrastructure. The Dutch are not as pristine when it comes to and I don't mean that I mean they're very very good uh, very good focus but they don't have a nice list they tend to be a little more uh, like a cloud kind of saying, okay, we have our critical elements and we have to worry about making sure the, the country is protected. And this is how we proceed with our approach. Uh, I'm not saying the US way is the only way, but it's the first and it's a, a pretty decent model. And it's something that I've been a student of since, probably since around Clinton or thereabouts because I'm seasoned. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you this because it makes me think from uh, from a political science point of view what you just said. In the the Dutch wants to focus on defending the country, so let let's leave space where it is unless it's affecting the country. But is nowadays possible to defend your country without coordination with other country and therefore considering space, as you say, you know, you like the UK approach to be relevant. Even if you focus on your country, you need to focus on, on what is not, right? It's, yeah. it's not just space. It's, it's where we do communication and other things. Yeah. Well, I, first of all, I, um, I apologize to the EU because the EU is actually doing a lot relative to critical infrastructure and the Dutch are part of that. So, Uh, and so are the Italians. So uh, just so there is a, a, an element of focus on critical infrastructure in the EU because the EU is smart enough, if you will, to say, hey, we need to worry about these interdependencies. You know, right. what if there is an event that occurs in France that in turn uh, negatively impacts Italy or vice versa. So so forth. So um, now I, I don't think even in the U.S. you cannot. Uh, you cannot do something without thinking uh, globally. Um, for example, most of the electricity, like where Sean is right now, there's a ton of electricity coming down to uh, New York City from Quebec. Uh, I mean, it's just, a, and the same thing on the West Coast, there's a ton of electricity coming down from British Columbia, okay? So you have to worry about the international aspects Um, to uh, for all of this, all of it, water, electricity, uh, even for example, uh, what's the big push right now uh, is uh, is uh, um, supply chain cybersecurity uh, focus and S bombs, security. Oh, sorry, uh, 
software bills of materials, right? That's all international. I mean, if you think about it, uh, I want to buy a new hard drive today. Where was it made? Probably Malaysia or Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and then the chipset that's inside the hard drive has software in it. Where'd that software come from? Yep. Did it come from China? Did it come from Taiwan, Malaysia? Did it come from the U.S.? Mm -hmm. There are so many ways of looking at this. That's what I find exciting about it. I mean, I love the subject, and I could talk for years. Oh, me too. I mean, and and I didn't mean anything wrong for European community either. If I want to go back in, in there, I, that's that's <laughs> that's where I belong. So sorry, I didn't mean it in that way. Oh no, no, but, and I didn't mean to omit that. <laughs> but in the when you look at the past and you look at history, actually, yeah, I mean, we we have experienced directly all this interdependency more than other country like the U.S. that is, you know, all the way here. I mean, until we connected everything, you could be here, have a world war, and not really be affected so much. So I love this talk too, but what I would like to know now, and, and I'm sure Sean has a few questions here, is who do you had in mind when you wrote this book? Who did you write for and what kind of you know, advice, practical advice for for the cybersecurity professionals um, you can find there. So what's your audience? Well, I wrote this, uh, I think that goes back to the genesis of why I wrote the book. So I wrote the book more or less to basically say, this is how I have done this work for years and years and years. I started out back in, uh, I was with a company in Atlanta in uh, shortly after Chernobyl happened. And uh, so it's like 1986 or so. And I was working for a company called the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations. And we would go out to nuclear plants around the world and do assessments to look for nuclear security and nuclear safety risk. And a nuclear plant is a giant steam plant, right? It's a giant generation plant, just the fuel sources, nuclear, the heat source, not oil or gas or whatever. Um, I was I learned a lot when I was at INPO and I learned a lot of techniques and a lot of approaches. And as I proceeded through my career, I carried all of those concepts and lessons learned and everything else with me as I proceeded to do consulting or work internally to my own my own company that I was at and so forth. And basically it gave me a methodology. So if some, somebody said to me, Ernie, I need you to do a, a risk assessment of XYZ, um, I, I right away I knew how to do it. I mean, I already had the checklist in my head. I had, you know, I had the concept. I knew where to look, how to look uh, and how to, to try and categorize the, the findings or the threats, sorry, the risks that I identified. All right, well, because I was able to do that, and when I was working with people, I would get the question of like, how the heck did you learn this? Where did you, how do you know how to do this? And for me, it's very natural. It's just boom, I even have, I even have a methodology and I talk about my notebook, I mean, sorry, in my book on how to put your notebook together when you go out in the field and how you carry it when you're climbing up and down a ladder and all that stuff sounds trivial, but believe it or not, it's stuff I learned. Right. So 
what happened was, uh, so I'm, I'll be 70 in March and I was, uh, starting to think about, well, should I retire? Should I not retire? I don't know. Uh, and I decided that I was going to write a letter to the industry. And so I started, a friend of mine wrote a book. I asked him, I said, how'd you write the book? He gave me some guidance on, uh, some other external references to take a look at. And so I just read those and I sat down and I started to write a book and I was going to self-publish on Amazon. Well, uh, Phil Rothstein, who's the publisher of Rothstein, uh, uh, was the one who basically sent out a mass mailing to all of his, his mail list and said, if anybody's got a book idea, let me know. I did. And because I'd already written a couple chapters and I had a table of contents and a few other things, I mailed it to him and then he said, this is what I like. This is what I want. Let's make it happen. So uh, it was kind of serendipitous in its way that it occurred. So who am I writing this for? Well, again, I'm writing it for the industry. It's kind of like saying, dear industry, I've had very good success using this technique. Here it is. Boom. The second thing is, is that there are a ton of junior engineers coming out and uh, junior auditors and brand new people coming out into the industry uh, and whatever that industry is, it could be oil, gas, electric, uh, refining or whatever. They're coming in and they have to learn how to look for threats and vulnerabilities and consequences, i.e. risks. Well, this is a textbook on how to do that. Uh, and I wrote it with the intent of saying, okay, section one was, I'm going to teach you about what is critical infrastructure, what is risk? What are different types of risk assessments? And section two is what I call the handbook. And this is where it's like, okay, I have a flow chart in the, in the book and I have a variety of uh, things that you should be doing for each section. And the flow chart is in three phases. Phase one is preparation. Phase two is on site. Phase three is writing the report. And of that, there's a lot of uh, sub-elements that are to be looked at. And then uh, the third section of the book is a, uh, essentially it's a report. The, it's not an exact duplicate because what it is, it's a hybrid. And I captured a bunch of different findings and things from other, other uh, customer e events and everything was changed to protect the innocent. So it wasn't like I had a finding from a paper mill and somebody went, oh my God, I recognize that and I'm going to sue you. So, but that was the idea of the book. Who should read this? I want a brand new engineer. I want this in junior for engineering classes. Uh, I want this for people in internal audit. I want this for people in insurance companies. I want this for people at, uh, co um, well, I said colleges already, but at consulting firms. You know, um, and then finally, I want executives to see this. I want them to have this on their desk when they sit there and go, get out there and do a security assessment. And the answer is, oh, and he hands them the book and says, do it this way. At least it's a starting point, right? Because there isn't anything like this. And, and uh, if there is, no one's ever told me you wrote a book that's redundant. <laughs> Even even if there was uh, having having your perspective with your experience uh, would seem to be worthwhile anyway. 
And I, I want to dig into that a little bit more because the when you say an engineer, um, are you talking security engineer or or is it specific to an industry? Um, so it's a, a gas field engineer responsible for the valves or who is Good it? question. The answer is probably no. It's probably almost like if you work in, in critical infrastructure, and we already know that's a huge area, okay, uh, this is probably a useful tool for you, okay? I mean, because I can, I can imagine, uh, for example, uh, I say engineer, but uh, strangely enough, even though I've done engineering work for years and years and years, I don't have an engineering degree. Okay. I was a nuclear engineer in the Navy. I was declared chief nuclear engineer by Admiral Rickover, but I don't have an engineering degree. So am I an engineer? And eh, not really. Well, sorry. Some people think I'm not. Some people think I am. So um, anyway, well, the point is, is I guess that too then, because because then you earlier you mentioned IT and I think you said which includes OT. OT, right. And and. Certainly, there are physical systems in both. Um, they look different. Um, we can naturally be in cybersecurity and, and information technology. I can see the, the software elements in that world. It's a little less clear for me in the OT world what the software elements are and the interconnectivity and the networking. And I presume there's cloud and all that stuff there as well. Um, how does the book help connect those two worlds well it, it's it probably doesn't do it um pristinely okay but what it is intended to do is teach people how to think and how to look at uh, a facility for instance okay um if you think about it i was this is where i got my nuclear training when i was a navy nuclear guy is that thinking in terms of systems, right? Uh, I mean, I think back on my training, my basic training, and then also going through all the certifications and qualifications. And you need to understand systems and you need to understand systems on how they interact with other systems, right? So for example, I never got in, I never really, uh, if I was running the plant, I was not worried about a particular valve or check valve per se, what I was worried about is the impact of system A on system B and if system A fails, what's the impact on systems B, C, D, E, and F, okay? So um, when it goes to the IT and OT side, right, just because I've been exposed to that, um, I still think in terms of systems, but for example, uh, uh, let's say I'll go to a, I go to a plant. Okay, I'm gonna use this as an example, which might help. So I'm at a factory. The factory uses SAP, so uh, was an enterprise resource uh, planning program. Okay, and it uses SAP to do lo lovely things like make barcodes that you put on top of packages, and uh, it keeps track of inventory going out of the building and coming in the building and so forth. Okay. That is normally an IT system. But I've been out to factories where I see SAP on the factory floor and the factory is OT, 
operations technology, right? All the PLCs and the different devices that are running the, the packaging machines and the conveyor belts, et cetera, okay? At first glance, people go, so what? Okay, I need that barcode. I need that information. The challenge is, which I've seen, is that you've got an IT system coming into the OT part of the plant without a firewall, without any kind of uh, protection, so that if I wanted to hack the company, I go out on the factory floor, I find the SAP machine, and I do my inject there with a, a cyber attack. And it not only screws up the packaging and the labeling, but also it goes back on the line, back into the, into the enterprise IT network, and I can shut everything down. Ransomware is a good example, current example, but why not just a simple denial of service attack or a virus? I mean, I can just do that. So, so that's how I want people to think. And that's how I think when I go into a plant, it's almost like, oh, this is nice. This is SAP, but why is it here? And if it's here, that's good, but is it protected? Is there, so I literally look at the architecture diagrams. I go up to where it penetrates into the plant to see where it comes in and so forth. And that's how I can look at it and go, you got a problem here. And this is how I suggest you fix it. See, see what I mean? It's kind of a, it's a holistic view. And every time I see something, I ask the question, is this right? Is this okay? Is this safe? Is this secure? And if the answer in any way is no, or even a little bit no, then I, that's what I would pursue. Mm. See, I, I love this because we went from the history to your experience to some like political approach to some really relevant advice. And at the end of the day, it is about what I believe cybersecurity is, which is question everything, right? I mean, there is no certainty. It's like the hacker's mindset. Like, can I make it better? Can this be a, an entry point? Can this be, you know, protected? Is it protected? And so many questions. So yep. ask a lot of questions. And we did ask a lot of questions to you. I'm sure there is plenty more answer even to questions that we haven't asked you in the book. So we, we are really happy that you took the time to join us on this. Um, we're going to call it off now because, of course, Sean could go with another last question, I which I'm going to cut in the, in the <laughs> before I even think about it. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back uh, on, on ITSP Magazine. We, we really enjoyed this, oh, this chat. And, uh, honored. Yeah, and, uh, and for the audience, you know how it works. Um, you can go to Redefining Security section or channel on ITSP Magazine. And then from there, there'll be links to learn more about Ernie, to learn about the book and uh, any other resource that Ernie wants to share with us. We'll put links there. So again, Sean, great conversation. Uh, looking forward for more. And I think you, you nailed it, Marco, that uh, it's about asking questions and Sometimes you need to know what the questions are before you can ask them. And uh, it seems like Ernie's captured a lot of that in the book. And, and uh, hopefully folks find it uh, valuable and resourceful. 
Thanks for the time. Thanks again, Ernie. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Archer empowers organizations to manage multiple dimensions of risk on one platform with on-premises and software-as-a-service offerings and quickly implement industry-standard processes and best practices for advanced risk management maturity, informed decision-making, and enhanced business performance. Learn more at archerirm.com. EdgeScan offers continuous vulnerability intelligence as a service, accurately identifying vulnerabilities and exposures across the full stack. All threats are verified by cybersecurity experts, providing exploitable risk and remediation guidance, virtually false positive free. Learn more at edgescan.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Security Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24.